Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I am David Kern, and as always on Close Reads, I am joined by Angelina Stanford and Tim McIntosh. Happy New Year, guys. How's it going? Happy New Year, David. Is this the last? Is this? I, you know, I'm at that weird moment after Christmas where I do not have any idea what day it is. So, our is this our last 2017 episode? This is the last episode of 2017, both for the listeners and for us recording. This is it. Wow. So, okay, let in a minute. Did it? Finish line. Woo! We're gonna. We're next. Next week, we're gonna do. We're gonna kick off 2018 with a kind of 2017 in review. So I've got some questions yeah. about the I'm show. I'm gonna have to totally just make up a list. <laughs> no, I've got. I read 172 books. Eat it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of books. So I'm gonna. Would um, be. Uh, although Cindy Rollins did read 106 books, according to her Goodreads. Okay, we cannot use her as this any year. Kind of she page. did. Yeah, she reads 100 she... books a year. Yeah, do not try to be Cindy Rollins. That's the path to insanity. Well, in, in that, that is incredible. You should try to be like Cindy Rollins, but maybe not in that particular area. No, Cindy Rollins is a pathological liar about her book list. You can quote me on that. <laughs> <laughs> Calling out no, Cindy. I, I adore Cindy Rollins, and she <laughs> will find that statement hilarious. So anybody who's listening, it's not me talking trash about my <laughs> dear friend. Cindy, she will find that utterly hilarious and will trash talk me right back. It's, People don't know. Cindy Rollins is a baseball mom. That woman knows how to dish up some trash talk. She had she she raised seven boys or whatever it is, all of whom are Eight like boys. in the they're like in the military or police officers. They're like Navy SEALs. So she knows how to she knows how to, to dish out some trash. Oh talk. yeah. That's right. But, Don't let her Farrah Fawcett looks disarm you. <laughs> so, so one of the things that I want to talk about next week as we, on, in our year in review is the show in review. So be prepared for that. So that's a little teaser for next week's episode that we're going to record. Um, oh, okay. I literally can't remember the books we read. So we might have to have a little meeting to <laughs> there remind me. What there we weren't that many. You can just look back in, your, in the... Uh, no, I'm in a time warp. I'm going to be like, Jaber Crow, was that, was that in September? <laughs> <laughs> 
favorite so, kind of year, David. <laughs> so, um, I think we did. We start with O'Connor last year. Maybe we did. I have, we'll have no to, idea. We'll have to look back. It sounds right. This episode, though, is a Q and A episode for Twelfth Night. So we're, there were a few questions and the thread related to reading in general, but I'm going to save those for the next week's podcast. So these questions we're going to keep primarily, or at least generally, to Twelfth Night. Or at least to Shakespeare, Shakespeare in general. Uh, before we do that, though, I want to hear a little bit about your holidays. And so for those people who have been listening to this show for, oh, say, I don't know, at least a month, they'll remember that we talked about Thanksgiving. And we talked about how Angelina does not like <laughs> Thanksgiving food. Like the traditional American, being, being like a Cajun, she doesn't like the rest of America. So um, what I want to know is, Angelina, what do you make... What is your favorite food that is related to Christmas or that you make? You know, some give us give us a food context for the Angelina Christmas. Okay, so the classic Angelina Christmas dish, as you know, because I brought it to you at the office, is my peanut butter fudge. Bam. All right, nice. That is that was very good, by the way. Oh, thank you for that. Tim, and I'm so sorry that you missed out on that. But Matt Bianco ate your portion. He did eat thank a lot you. of that. Yep. Thank you to Matt. <laughs> Um, I'm sure Tim's hips are grateful. Um, <laughs> they probably are. Tim, what about you? I don't you? know what? why you presume it was pure fat, which it totally was. But because I've made fudge before. <laughs> um, so uh, Tim, well, okay, let me let me go back to Angelina for a second. Okay, so what what is the thing that you like about like Christmas dinner though? Does your family are you a ham family? Are you a turkey family? I assume not turkey. Are you? Okay. Or do you cook a goose? No to all of those. My favorite Christmas food is gumbo, but we decided not to do that this year because that would require me standing in the kitchen cooking all day, which because, I really do But it just sounds like that's your favorite food in general because that's like, if oh, I ask oh, you what your is. favorite it Easter is. food is, what's your favorite birthday food? What do you eat on President's Day? Columbia? Like it's gumbo. Oh, my favorite, oh, let's just put this on the record. My favorite food of all time is seafood gumbo. If I was on death row, this is what I would request. And yes, I've spent a lot of time thinking about that question. Don't judge me. Everybody should have, everybody should have a ready-made answer for what their last meal on earth would be everybody should have a death row menu i'm just feeling like this is is a good exit i'm not going to be caught unprepared okay (laughs) yeah i mean no this is my funny story is that at one point in louisiana i read this article in the newspaper so it was like a long time ago and people printed newspapers so i was sitting on my dinosaur (laughs) reading a newspaper and there was an article about this prisoner at angola who had been on death row on the eve of his execution and had been pardoned, not pardoned, but given the stay, appeals stay, extension. Yeah. A stay, there you go. More times than any prisoner in the United States. And as a result, he had had more last suppers than anybody <laughs> in America. Huh. So the article is all about the different food he has requested. And it was an interview with the chef. Somebody really used to write a short story about this because it was fascinating because it started off with like this elaborate menu. And at the end, it was like chicken nuggets and french fries. Like he's just like <laughs> phoning it in now. <laughs> Top ramen. Yeah. I know. I'm like, just like, he's just Dude, like, just, eh. bring me, just bring me some hot water and a package. I'm good. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So what did you eat for uh, Christmas we dinner? We really though? derailed this. Okay. So I made a roast and we did potatoes. So I did a roast and we did nice. potatoes and asparagus nice. and cauliflower and a bunch of, bunch of things like that. Nice. That's, that's perfect. Sounds classic. Tim, what is your, uh, what is your favorite Christmas dinner and did you have that this year? Cause I know you were you're not, you were not with your family this Christmas. Were you? I wasn't, you guys, I didn't have a Christmas. 
Aww. I it, no, it's not a complaint. I just, you know, I was with my folks for Thanksgiving. I'm back in Seattle. Um, my friends that I'm staying with, you know, there's I've got the writer's cottage, but my in in their backyard, you know, they were doing their own family stuff, and they wanted me to come. And <laughs> this is this is terrible. I stayed home for Christmas. What did you do all day? Tim, we're all gonna. Cry I wrote now. and read all day. It, I mean, no, it was a good day. Don't get me wrong. It just wasn't Christmas. Yeah, yeah. See, yeah. immediately when you said you, you know, you, you didn't have Christmas and you didn't have a home, I'm like picturing, you know, a scene out of the Little Rascals, and you're like in front of a big barrel, and there's a flame, and you got like a can of beans on a stick, and you're just <laughs> <laughs> gloves with the fingers cut like, off. Oh, exactly. I'm a total like United States uh, Depression era, eating out of a can. <laughs> That is what? that is Christmas is Tim in my head right now. <laughs> well, so so now Tim, you're going to be getting like you're going to get a flood of things in the mail. It's going to be like I know people um, are going to be sending you turkeys in the mail. What are those? Red Don't send me turkeys, just to be clear. What Listen, if that's what I if that's what I got, I would I would play I would play it up every Christmas. I stayed home again this year. Did you? I had did you, no one. <laughs> Did your family, um, did your parents send you anything? Did you, did you open a gift on Christmas or did you at least do something with them before you went back to Seattle? No. No, Tim is the Scrooge, if you haven't. <laughs> no, I'm not the Scrooge. No, were, I'm not the Scrooge. Admit it, you were counting gold coins all day, December 25th. Admit it. <laughs> we're going to... We're gonna have that to, is not what happened. We're gonna have to, Tim. We're gonna have to send My you. My imagination is so much better than your real life. You just need to go with it. <laughs> we're gonna have to send you. You have a, a very Dickensian sort of imagination. <laughs> I, I go to the dark places quickly. I have been told this often. <laughs> we're gonna have to send Tim a stocking. It's it's cold enough across the country that like chocolate shouldn't melt if we send him a stocking. No, yeah, no, it'll be fine. We'll so okay, one, we'll one more. Fry the rest of my fudge out of Matt Bianco's hands and stick it in Tim's thigh. <laughs> one, one more question then before we before we get back to uh, Twelfth Night. So, Tim, I'll go start with you first. What was your favorite? Like, what's your nostalgic Christmas gift memory? Oh, the, was it the little, red, a, little red rider BB gun or mine was our, our grandfather. So we didn't have. We were not poor growing up but we didn't you know we didn't have a ton of excess money we were living on a pastor's salary right right our grandparents this explains um, the gold coin counting right right that's why i'm a hoarder now um my grandparents lived in my mom's mom and dad lived in california they moved in with us because my grandfather had gone blind he had a stroke to his optic nerve when i was seven hmm. and he went blind and my grandmother had contracted tuberculosis. She was like a lifelong smoker. I don't know if that has anything to do with tuberculosis. Is this a Steinbeck but... novel? Or did you live in a Steinbeck novel? This is amazing. <laughs> Keep going. Um, my grandmother died shortly after they moved in with us. Um, and grandpa lived with us for probably, I guess, gosh, I'd say maybe six, seven years before he passed away. But he, you know, he was very fond of spoiling his grandchildren. We had no objections to that. And my, I can't remember how old I was, but I got this Schwinn bicycle that was 
I went from like this purple and yellow huffy bicycle, which all of my friends were, they just felt pity and scorn for me <laughs> because of the huff. I mean, the huffy weighed about like 1,600 pounds. Oh, it had all these like the thick, uh, you know, it's like, it's huffy because it's indestructible. But what makes it indestructible is all of the weight and welding and everything is thick. There's just nothing sleek. There's nothing light. So it's not, romantic. Rode, it's not, a, oh it's not romantic. It is not. It's like, <laughs> it's like bicycling a tank. It's and all my, my buddies had really nice bikes. They, you know, they'd spent some money on their bikes. And so I went from kind of like being in last place with regards to my bicycles to first place. Grandpa got me a Schwinn Sting. It was trimmed out in red. Everything else was chrome. And I remember he, he bought it and I knew that he was getting it for me. And mom and dad said, okay, here's the deal. We're buying it today. This is like a month before Christmas. And you can ride it today, but then it's going to the basement and you're, you can't mess with it again until Christmas. And I was like, sure, fine. So I remember, I think it was my brother and I, maybe it was my sister and I, we went out in our uh, driveway on the one night that I had my Schwinn Sting before it went in the basement for a month. And I was determined to learn how to do a bunny hop. Do you guys know what a, do you guys, did you no. call them bunny hops? No, I didn't call okay. them a bunny hop. It's basically, yeah, yeah. you just get both wheels off the ground at the same time without any sort of ramp or anything. It's, okay. it's kind of a tricky move. And I was determined I was going to learn how to bunny hop because when you have a huffy, yeah, that's huffies true. don't bunny hop. You don't bunny hop a tank. So I learned. I was so determined, and I learned how to do a bunny hop on my new Schwinn Sting, and then it went in the basement for a month. But that was that's the best <laughs> present I've ever gotten. <laughs> Angela, it went. In the just to show you how dark my imagination is, as Tim was telling this, this was the end I was anticipating. And then it got left out and stolen. And so <laughs> one night I had my Schwinn bike. I really thought I was getting the tissues. Tim, I was ready for this. He Satisfyingly sad, dark, melodramatic ending. And you didn't give it to me. And then you're like, it was awesome. God, he what did, a letdown. He didn't grow up in Eugene though, Angelina. <laughs> I didn't. Oh my goodness. Eugene is like the bicycle thief capital of the world. That's not an exaggeration. Like, you leave it out for five minutes, that thing is gone. It is gone. <laughs> so, Angelina, what about you? Do you have a nostalgic gift that you remember? You know, as soon fondly? as you asked this question, I felt a panic attack coming on. Like, <laughs> it's like, oh, he's asking me about my childhood. Now I have the shakes. So I'm just going to randomly pick something because, you know, I don't like questions like favorite and best and happy. <laughs> Was there a nostalgia factor for anything, though? Like if someone mentioned... Oh, gosh. No, I don't have nostalgia either. That's a whole other separate issue. I'm just going <laughs> to randomly pick a Christmas and it'll be related to Tim's Christmas because he just gave me the lead in for that. So I think I might have been six. No, I would have been younger than that. I must have been, I'm trying to remember what house we lived in. I was probably five. But anyway, for, for, so for that year, for Christmas, I got um, a super awesome purple bike with a sparkly purple banana seat streamers. Whoa! Yeah, I was rocking it, Mm. but then I didn't learn how to ride it, so it was just kind of around. That that makes it difficult. (laughs) (laughs) It was just in the basement. Well, we didn't have basements. We live in Louisiana. Yeah. If you dig two inches into the ground, you're gonna hit water. So we don't have basements. Ooh. That's why the houses are above ground. 
They're all about Prime. But anyhow. Yeah, so David, what, a, David, what'd you get, David? Tell us about the time you got a bike. I never got a bike. <laughs> um said <gasps> I'm calling Andrew right now. It's not too late. Well, I don't think. I don't have any recollection of getting a bike for Christmas. So there's two things that have always stood out for me. Uh, both of them from my grandparents. Um, my grandma grew up in Texas, so she was very much a fan of all things cowboy. Um, and we watched, we would watch Roy Rogers and the Lone Ranger and Bonanza and all those. Shows. Like those are the things my brother and I loved and we liked playing cowboys. But when I was probably seven, seven, I'm guessing. And he was five or six. We got like the whole get up. So we opened it up and there was, you know, the, I might've been six and five, something like that. But, um, there was the, you know, the, the cat guns that had the things where you would, they would like smoke when you pull the triggers. Mm-hmm. Oh Yeah. Then, um, and it came with a holster in the belt, and then, it, then we had like a vest and a hat, and like these uh, the, the the plastic rifles that came with it. So we had the whole the whole outfit. That was a big, that was a big one, and I I vividly remember opening those, um, and and how exciting that was. And then when we were, <clears throat> I was probably fourteen, fourteen or fifteen, somewhere in that range. Um, we were there. We were up in Wisconsin for Christmas because we'd moved away at that point. And my brother and I were given uh, tickets to go to a Packers game because being in Green Bay. So that was our first experience with that. So they dropped us off the next morning um, and gave us these tickets. And we got to go to see the Packers and the Vikings play. And it was like 10 degrees outside. It was everything you'd want in a Wisconsin Christmas, you know, Packers game. So that was, those were the two things. That's like those tickets are, I think I'm on the waiting list for season tickets and my grandkids might get them. So they're very hard to come by. Wow. So that was a wow. big deal. Um, so those were those were the two nostalgia the nostalgia gifts that when I think about like what are the things I want to get my kids like those are the ex- experiences you know you think about the little absolutely the things that were like kind of blow your six year old mind. <laughs> See, and my motto is just I keep trying to do the opposite of everything that was ever done for me. <laughs> it has served me well. We are just two extremes here. <laughs> well, That's why I read books because that's the only way I can have happy memories. Anyway, next. (laughs) 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 And even then, my book memories are like, and did your bike get stolen? And are you eating beans out of it? Well, that's because you were reading Dickens. (laughs) I was about to say, or which came first? It's like, did the Dickens come first? Or did the Dickensian imagination come first? No, I have legitimately wondered this as I think back about the books I obsessively read as a child. David Copperfield was one of them. I was really young the first time I read that. I've read that a lot. And, uh, of course, the Arabian Nights, which I've talked before, which are very dark, the darkest of the fairy tales. So I've wondered, you know, did those stories shape me or did I like them so much because I was already like that? Nurture, nature or nurture. Nature or nurture. Well, this we may not be solving that this, one today. <laughs> this may not be the place to solve that this particular this particular. Day. No, um, but there are a lot of questions that we should answer by other people. <laughs> Oh, if we have to. I'm just going to toss them all to Tim while I eat fudge. (laughs) There's a lot of questions on here about um, uh, Feste in particular. I do have some things I want to say about the ending so that I forgot to say last time, so don't let me forget. Okay, so that's actually where I want to start. So there is a question here um, um, about whether the ending has a satisfying resolution. This comes from Sarah, Sarah Montgomery. So thanks for listening, Sarah. Um, and she says, um, 
in the last episode, there was discussion about whether or not the unstable characters like Orsino and Viola uh, had truly changed or whether they would end up changing their minds and moving on with the next fancy they have. This seems not to resolve the topsy-turvy theme. So is Twelfth Night satisfying and does it have a satisfying resolution? And we did touch on this a little bit, but the idea that yeah. um, whether or not they change their minds resolves the topsy-turvy theme is interesting. Uh, so, Angelina, do you have any thoughts on that? Or are we kicking that over to Tim? No, no, I can, I can, I can tie that into something to talk about. So, okay, so just to review what we said last time was that uh, at the, at the end of this uh, of the play, it's 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 still very open ended about whether or not they've achieved any kind of growth. Uh, and so, a couple of things that I I did not mention in the last episode is as we've been talking about the disguise motif in stories, and I talked about how the disguise motif is always related to the self-knowledge theme, right? So um, your true self is hidden, and then when the disguise comes off, the true self is revealed, and it's always tied to this self-knowledge. So we have a few a few interesting twists on, on that idea in this particular play, okay? One is that um, the one character... <clears throat> in this play who is in disguise is the only one who knows herself. So that's totally different. And the other characters don't know themselves and the kinds of disguises they're in are not literal disguises. They're just metaphorical disguises that, you know, their true selves are hidden from, from their own eyes. Um, so there's that. The other thing is the way that this <clears throat> disguise motif is typically resolved in a play is that there's a, in a story rather, um, is there's, there's typically two parts to it. One is the disguise comes off. But before that, there's always some kind of proof of identity moment. And it can be a variety of things. So, for example, in the Odyssey, the proof of identity moment is the scar, right? <clears throat> the nurse sees a scar. Now uh, Odysseus' identity has been proven. Sometimes it'll be birth tokens, um, a blanket or a signet ring. Um, sometimes it's a letter. But there's always something <clears throat> that proves the identity of the person. And that is usually the moment that that's the impetus then for the disguise coming off and, and, the, and the true person being revealed. You do have that proof of identity in this story. That's with the sea captain. The sea captain is who they're going to appeal to to prove that Viola is who she says she is because he has her clothes. What's different about this is that he's not in the play. He doesn't show up and present the proof of identity and then Viola takes off her disguise. All of that, <clears throat> the, the proof of identity is offstage and the taking off the disguise is offstage. It's alluded to as it's possibly going to happen. But when the play ends, the disguise is not removed. She is still in disguise. Her identity is alluded to, but not proven definitively. <clears throat> Excuse me. All of which I think um, supports this idea that it's an intentionally ambiguous ending, right? Um, has anybody reached self-knowledge or not? Yeah. I don't think that that makes for the ending being not resolved. Um, I, I think an intentionally ambiguous ending is a resolution. It does. It reaches stasis. He's just raising questions about um, whether or not any real change has happened. So it's not unsatisfying to me, especially because the clown speech at the end, he's throwing it out to the audience basically to decide, you know, are we going to, are we going to still just be children about all of this? Or are we going to grow into adulthood? Which is really the question about the characters as well. So for me, it's mm -hmm. not, uns we've talked about this before mm -hmm. on the show, you know, does every, does every loose thread have to be tied up neatly at the end for it right. to be, satisfying ending and yeah, yeah. you know sometimes it's not tied together at the end because the author is terrible and has just blown it <laughs> that is right. not the case here right this is somebody who knows the form knows what he's doing and, and thematically gives us the ending that 
resolves the thematic story here. So the ending is just as topsy turvy as the rest of it. And and what I what I find interesting is that the clown throws it onto the audience. Basically, you yeah. guys decide. What, right. what are we going to be here? Are we going to stay like children or are we going to grow up? So to me, it, it, it's very satisfying because he, he puts it into this kind of large scale cultural conversation, which, you know, I, I think we all agree is one of the things that art does is gets us looking at ourselves, right? Um, often not that directly where somebody's pointing at the audience saying, hey, you guy in the third row, are you going to man up or what? But <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I often feel that way after I engage with art that I just got slapped across the face. But there you go. Uh- I do find it fascinating that Orsino doesn't even refer to Viola by Viola. Oh, I know. So she is um, complete, and he, and he, and and so some critics make a big deal and try to say this is a homosexual subtext, right? That he is still with her. He has fallen in love with her as a man, quote unquote. Um, I don't think that that's what's going on. I, I think that the, that it's the disguise motif, and that he's 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 not penetrating to who she really is. He's just taken the idea of being in love with being in love right and just mm-hmm. transferred from one object to yeah. another and the fact right not even looking at the real person just emphasizes that he's not really in love with a person plus he's also going for a humor i mean that would be it would be funny oh, yeah. on stage like as you're oh, watching yeah, yeah. it to just to, to see him jumping from one person to the next and you knowing who she is but him not calling her by the correct name um there is something i suppose there about um the the, uh, the revealing like revealing more about yourself like the intimacy of that as a relationship grows like I, i've heard people write about that before so tim i'll turn this over to you because the idea of satisfaction at the end of a story is an interesting one yeah um because it, it can be looked at from a number of so, sort of different angles there's there's the idea that a story itself can be sort of inherently satisfying structurally satisfying um with that, mm-hmm. even if the threads aren't resolved, but that can still lead to some lack of satisfaction emotionally for particular readers. Do you, yeah. do you, do you find um, Twelfth Night to be either satisfying or unsatisfying in either of these areas? Um, does this, does the stasis that hangs there that we're kind of suspended in, does that, does that lead you to be unsatisfied in, in either of those ways? I I don't find it to be emotionally satisfying. I find it to be kind of intellectually uh, satisfying. To be sort of intellectually satisfying for the reasons that Angelina articulated much better than I would have. I think that it ends ambiguously. I think I like how the clown kind of turns to us and kind of it's almost like he asks a question: How is this going to go for them? And we have to resolve it, you know, because it's not, the resolution is not really in the play. Mm-hmm. And I find that very intellectually satisfying. I, emotionally, I don't, I don't find it a terribly satisfying play. I, I, I find a lot of his other comedies. I am, I am one for Shakespeare's dramas. I like the dark tragedies the most. So, Because um, everyone dies. Those and are the ones that are stasis once everyone's dead. Oh, I just, I, well, we would, we would have to change tracks to talk about why I like them so much, but, um, I just, find some of the other comedies for making me seem like less of a freak. Now that you've admitted you love the tragedies. <laughs> I'm teasing. 
I don't know that loving Hamlet makes one a freak. It might make one sane, actually. Well, we can debate that later. No, <laughs> I'm totally kidding. I love the tragedy. So yeah, I find I find it intellectually as a as a puzzle, as a piece of theater craft. I think it's wonderful to behold. But I didn't finish Twelfth Night in. I didn't weep. I didn't laugh. I didn't, you know, it was just emotionally. I just, it just feels a little bit distant. I totally agree with that. And I think we talked about that last time. Like, do you have to deeply identify with the characters to experience catharsis? And right. I don't think, and I think distance is the right word here. And I think it's intentional. I don't think it's a mm-hmm. failure or a flaw. I think it's intentional yeah. um, because they're supposed to be superficial characters. But I agree. You know, we're not rooting yeah. for these couples. I don't see myself in any of these characters and at the end feel like I understand myself better like I do with so many of the other um, heroines in, in Shakespeare that I identify with. And it, uh, so, so, no, I can't really see anybody being like, ah, oh, yeah, I'm an Orsino. And I just really felt like <laughs> I came through at the end and I just really understand myself so much better now. Yeah. <laughs> In a lot of ways, I was thinking about this a couple of days ago. Twelfth Night feels to me like almost like a fable in a way, where like it, ah, the, yeah. characters, the characters are sort of stock in some ways. I don't know if that's the right word yeah. exactly, but then at the end, the 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 clown or feste or whatever, he kind of comes out and says, "So what do you think of this now? What's this going to mean to you now?" Um, and like, there's this lesson we're supposed to get out of it that the characters are. Um, they almost they feel like they play on the archetypes so heavily that that they don't feel like individuals at times. Maybe Viola is the that's only. That's a great one. insight, David. Whether no, I think that's absolutely right. Whether it's Orsino or Toby, it's, right? They, and we talked before like about stock. how it's got a. Um, I'm sorry. You know, you're Finish fine. Well, I was just gonna say, like Toby, for example, feels like a lesser version, a stock version, or an archetypal version of, say, um, uh, who's the who's the guy in Henry, in the in the Henry the Fourth and Henry the Fifth plays? Falstaff. Falstaff. Yeah, Falstaff. like a stock archetypal, just kind of lesser version of that. Um, right. And no, Orsino true. plays like feels like a lesser version of Romeo. Um, so it feels like a fable. Go ahead, Angelina. Sorry, I was. Well, I was, I was going to say that I think you're. I think you're absolutely right. And we've talked before about there's some very intentional fairy tale qualities here, um, particularly the fact that the place is named Illyria, which sounds like Elysium. And you know, when Viola says, "Where am I? Am I in Elysium?" and it's like, "No, you're in Illyria." And and some of the stuff I've read suggests, which I and I agree with, suggests that it's a it's a false Elysium. Like this is a false heaven. This is a false fairy tale. So it's like the and, good place. Like the show. Have you guys watched that show? Oh, well, I haven't seen that, but oh, okay. You guys I haven't seen it either. Oh, man. Okay, go watch the show and you'll hear what it is. Never mind. <laughs> it's a good show. You yes, watch David, it. that a brilliant insight. No, I'm just, that's what I'll be thinking. 30, 28 minutes. From, I'm, actually, uh, I'm actually shocked that you have not seen that, Angelina. You'd love that show, I think. Well, it's on my list. I hear everybody talking about it, but I just have not been watching any TV at all. Except so The I'm, Office I'm, with your daughter. Well, that's just on a continual loop, and I don't count that as watching... <laughs> Research, David. <laughs> okay, right, I got it. Okay. Anyway, sorry. Go ahead. I, I. But, but anyway, yeah, it it is it is like a fairy tale, and with fairy tales, you expect a certain superficial archetypal characters. I mean, that's just what you expect. the The emphasis is going to be a lot more on the structure. Yeah. And yeah. You know what's you know what's interesting is that, you know, Shakespeare's the dating of Shakespeare's plays, like when he wrote them, is notoriously difficult. But there's kind of critical academic consensus about when 
such and such a play was written. And his fantasies, they're sometimes called fantasies, sometimes called romances, happen almost at the very end of his career. So the classic one is The Tempest. Mm -hmm. Very fantastical. The Winter's Tale also, very fantastical. The Winter's Tale, it concludes with um, Hermione, who we believe has died. She either comes back to life or has been hidden away in some unnamed place for years and years and years. So these type of turns tend to happen um, in the romances late in Shakespeare's career. And this, I completely agree with you, David. Twelfth Night reads like a romance of the late Shakespeare authorship, except there's nothing really magical. Like the Tempest is full of magic. It's Prospero can weave spells and just all these wonderful, amazing things happen. But it's almost like Twelfth Night is that type of play, but if you could just pull the magic out of it. Stock characters, silly situations, lots of romance, you know, male-female romance. Um, and I wonder if it was kind of like almost like sort of a warm-up for the late period romances, which includes Cymbeline, which mm, a lot of people don't know Cymbeline because it's not a really great play. But Winter's Tale and Tempest are the best known of the romances, and they're delightful. They're just delightful plays. Let's. I'm trying to remember what I read recently um, about that that supports what you're saying. So I might I might really butcher this paraphrase, but essentially this guy thought where Twelfth Night came chronologically in the canon, um, which was kind of in the middle, right? Um, yeah that it, it was almost a synthesis of all the plays and the archetypes and the structure and the ideas that had come before. And he just huh. like, tosses them all together and then throws it out there to the audience of what are we going to make with this? And then kind of launches on to the second half of his writing career, which ends up being a little bit different. Yeah. Yeah. Almost the first half of Shakespeare's plays are almost all comedies or histories. So histories like the Henry the Henry the Sixth trilogy, uh, the Taming of the Shrew, being one of the comedies. Titus Andronicus is kind of an outlier horror film kind of play, but then maybe a little bit more than halfway through his career, it becomes comedies and tragedies, and all of the great, the most of his best known plays, Macbeth, Hamlet, Lear. Those are all in the period right after, ironically, not ironically enough, after the death of his son. Um, and they take about seven years. And most of the really great tragedies all fall in that period. And then after that, as he's moving toward retirement, it's And I think the comics romances. take on a real twist at that time as well, because Taming of the Shrew is much more of a farce. It's, it's much more farce. Well, it is a farce. And it's certainly much, much lighter than say much ado about nothing and some of the other mm. that come later. I mean, taming of the, and, I mean, Petruchio and Cato are definitely a precursor to Benedict and Beatrice, but it's much yeah. more merciful. What's and fairy tale? I, I mean, you take my Taming of the Shoe online class, which many of our listeners have. You know that I argue that the Taming of the Shoe is a fairy tale. It's also a fairy tale. So, um, and again, it's why we see more of these stock situations, and we can make sense of them when we understand that they're stock situations. Hmm. Let's jump to another question here. Um, Emily Upchurch, thank you for listening, Emily. She asks, 
does Feste know or guess that Violet isn't who she pretends to be? In other words, I saw that question online. It's I a did great too, one. and I don't know the answer. Tim, I'm going to punt this one to you. <laughs> that was <laughs> great because I don't know the answer either. What well, do you I think, wanna, David? I, I want to finish the question here. I'm going to read the whole thing. Oh, um, yeah. So, does Feste know or guess that Violet isn't who she pretends to be? In other words, does he see through Cesario's disguise, quote Cesario's? And she says, in reading the play, I thought several times that some of his lines to her indicated that he suspected her. And my husband and I agreed while watching the Trevor Nunn film that Ben Kingsley played it that way. Now, I do agree with that last part. And I was the thinking about that. He seems, the way Kingsley plays the character, he does seem to suspect her. So neither of you have any thoughts on this then, right? I've not seen any of the um, performances, so I don't do you, know. Just, you don't, just you going don't by have... the text, I did, not, I did not think that. And reading the scholarly essays that I did, I didn't run across anything that suggested that. I mean, that doesn't mean it's not true. I just didn't run across it. I, I ran across a lot of people talking about the, you know, the clown um, sees through Olivia's pretense of her mourning and what's really going on there. And so, I mean, I, I would agree that Feste is a character who sees through things. I would totally agree with that interpretation. Whether or not he saw through Viola, I don't know. I think I that, really that. I think that um, in a lot of ways, Feste is meant to be sort of a um, representative of the audience, of the reader, mm. and so he has mm. he he begins to see things or identify things, um, or at least intuit things that the audience might intuit as they're watching like he seems to i don't want to say he it's almost like he's an amalgam for all the different perspectives of the audience because he's tying things together in a way and so what i did was i went back and well tim do you have any thoughts on this well i before i jump i think it's one of those things i think it's i i think it's one of those uh actors discretion because the the one that the kenneth Branagh version that i saw Festa was played by a wonderful actor, Anton Lesser, and he does not play the recognition. Okay, he, he kind of avoids it. So this is this is interesting because I like that that they chose different perspectives because it means that it's not necessarily hundred percent. Yeah, and weirdly enough, I feel like both of those interpretations work. Mm -hmm. Like depending what it is that you want that character to do, how you're using that character, right. if that makes. So what I did is I went back to find scenes where the two of them are in in a scene, just the two of them, where where it's oh, yeah. like he could be oh okay you know he could be um, intuiting something or observing something or making a, they have a that jab scene at her. together right where he talks about using words to confuse is that yeah, so Viola that's, or Olivia? That's no them? that's that's three point one and the last thing he says to her. Um, as they're doing their little thing on wordplay there, he says, uh, this is lines 56 and, and 57 and 58 of 3.1. He says, uh, my lady is within, sir. I will constir to them whence you come. And then he says, who you are and what you would are out of my welkin. I might say element, but the word is overworn. And then he leaves. So, you know, the idea that who you are and who you are and what you would are out of my welkin. I mean, there is at least an implication that he is perhaps suspicious in some way in the scene. And well, yeah. also the what, what you would ties into the subtitle. The what you would. Yeah, I just thought the same thing, Angelina. It ties into the title. Okay, so let's. Okay, then we don't have a definitive answer for your question, Emily. But thanks for asking. Uh, but well, I um, think it's a valid interpretation. I mean, if we yeah. get all literary about it and be like, I think that's, I think that's a legitimate way to read it. And I think you could also not read it that way. 
Yeah. Uh, well, so, okay. You mentioned the title. You mentioned how that tie in there to the title with the what you would. Um, what you will, what you would. So then let's go to Lauren Scott's question. And we do would not have a ton of time. So I want to make sure we touch as many of these as we can. But I think this ties in. Lauren, uh, thanks for listening, Lauren. She mentions that we briefly discussed the title on the show for Act 5. And she says her husband and her listened to the play a while, a second time while driving home after Christmas travels yesterday, and that she noticed the phrase, what she will was used once in Act 1, Scene 5. When Cesario is calling on Olivia for the first time, Olivia says to Malvolio, go you Malvolio, if it be a suit from the Count, I am sick or not at home, what you will to dismiss it. Then she says, on the face of it, this doesn't strike me as all that significant, but is, it is the only time the... Um, is it the only time the phrase is used in the play? What do you think about that? It does not. Maybe it's the only time it's used in that specific phrasing, perhaps. Um, but again, we're seeing it here in 3.1. So let's tie those things together then. Um, let's talk a little bit more about the subtitle. Um, is the subtitle... Is Shakespeare... Is he asking, is he telling the audience with the subtitle, what you will to interpret the play, however they want, or is this meant to be something more about the characters and the way they interact with each other? Okay. So if it's, is it my turn? Go for it. I left it open on purpose. I was, I was waiting for someone to jump. <laughs> well, I, I figured Tim's I, eating, so I'm going to take my yeah, chance. While Tim, Tim is generally eating on the show. Yes. He's like he's like he's like Brad. I heard his mic go mute. I knew that was this is my time to jump in. <laughs> Tim, Tim is the well, Brad, the Brad Pitt of our show. He's always eating. That's right. That's right. <laughs> wow. I yeah. Just I just okay. Also, Don't he's, inc- he's incredibly handsome. He's he's incredibly handsome, and he's real mid forties. <laughs> That's right. All these things fit. Brad Pitt is in his fifties. Is well, he that's, really? That's yes. Not, that's not that far from mid forties. Whoa, whoa, whoa! <laughs> Relative, I mean, <laughs> relatively speaking. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. All right. Back to the question at hand. What? What you will, David? What you will <laughs> about about what decade you're in? All right. So Shakespeare's the master of the language and the master of the pun, and he is also punning here with his title. So what you will means a lot of things. Um, So will, of course, means like, what is your action? What will you decide to do? What will you act? Um, And and the will was a big part of the Elizabethan understanding of how, you know, the human soul was ordered. You had um, the reason, the will, and the passions, and they all had to be in properly ordered way for a person to be able to function properly. But they had a few different ways of understanding the will, whereas we tend to think of I guess, are we almost like Freudian in how we think of the will? Like, you know, we have desires and the will is, you know, the acting, the choice, the action that we make, that's the will. It's not exactly the way that an Elizabethan would have looked at it. So will could mean that. It could mean the act. Um, but it also can mean, and see, and this, this fits in with this topsy-turvy thing that he's got going on here. Will can also mean irrational desire, um, usually physical passion, and it's uncontrolled by judgment. So what you will then is also a pun for what people will, what, what, what frightening, uncontrollable passion or urge will overtake them and, and they will run off with. Okay. That is a terrific explanation of, so that subtitle just really does work for the kind of 
ambiguous conclusion mm-hmm. of the play. Right. Are they going to be it, carried away by this impulse, th- these emotions? Right. Are they going to have the will to act and control them? Yeah, wow. Wow. That was great, Angelina. Oh, thank you. It was all right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just messing with you. Just messing with you. So, okay, so... So you think that he's basically... I mean, okay. Do you, do either of you know how this was titled on a playbill? Say, like, would they have? Would that title have been shown up? Like when the guy's on the stage before he's like, "Welcome to Twelfth Night," or "What You Will." Is he? Um, is he saying all that, or is it just Twelfth Night? Did "What You Will" come in later when they printed the folio? Do Do either of you know anything about that? I do not. I know it's in the folio. Okay. Right. And I, I think I think it's li- they're listed side by side. So as I think in a lot of our versions, the title would be Twelfth Night underneath in parentheses or, you know, in a smaller font or what you will. So now mine, side by side now mine has it the same font though. Same font side by side in the version that I have in the, in huh. the river side. I love the idea of it like being all one line and it's just Twelfth Night or what you will. And it's like Shakespeare's like Twelfth Night or whatever the heck you want to call it. Yeah, like a shrug right yeah. in the title. Well, yeah. and that is kind of one of the things that's going on. Cause it because it is this kind of madcap topsy turvy thing. Go on. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Like, so it's almost like he's intentionally being like, Oh, it's twelfth night or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and, exactly. Plays just whatever. And it literally and there's you know, there's no direct tie-in to so <laughs> Two twelve, and the ending of the play is also like, and they lived happily ever after, or whatever. Yeah, it's not like it's, and it's not like this. <laughs> like a dissertation place. is coming on here. This is my dissertation, or whatever. It's about twelve night. It's not like this play. Dude, what were you saying? Over the twelve days of Christmas or whatever. So I love the idea of someone's like the the, the theater company comes to Shakespeare and they're like, okay, so Epiphany's coming up and all that. So we think you should write a play for the 12 days of Christmas. And we would like to promote it built around that. And Shakespeare's like, all right, you're going to pay me. So he goes out and writes the play. It has nothing to do with that. He puts 12th night on the title. And then he's just like, or what? You just like <laughs> completely is subverting the expectations of the people who hired him because he's Shakespeare and he does stuff like that. See, That's- well, I think what, here's a funny thing about Shakespeare. I think he hits the mark for his commissions so so well i mean macbeth has the three weird sisters who are clearly witches in it so that was the that was the halloween episode it was the halloween episode but it was written when when james was on the throne and james had written king james had written his own book on witchcraft yes he had there are so many things in the witches speeches that are like word for word out of james's book he was like totally being this sycophant to james through that entire play which cracks me up well this is a perfect segue to another question here perfect Um, and (laughs) So thank Tim, you just set that on a T for me and I was able to just swing. Um, Carla Montoya asks, well, it says Shakespeare seems to have written several strong heroines like Viola. Do you think this was a nod to Queen Elizabeth I? Was he giving her a character she could connect with? So that might tie into the, you know, connecting Macbeth with James and all these, you know, knowing who's in power is useful at times in your life. So yeah. well, uh, they were patrons. I mean, James was the sponsor of Shakespeare's so, company. 
do you do you guys think then that characters like Viola, these strong female characters, um, was was it that he was trying to do something specifically on Queen Elizabeth's behalf? Was it that there was a spirit, sort of like a sort of something in the air by having a strong female leader um, and a woman with with that much power, um, or was it that Shakespeare was? Um, a progressive, so to speak, or was it all three? I mean, was there, was it just a combination of all three things? All right, Tim, you get first crack at this. She wants to rebuke. I'm going to throw, I'm going to throw another explanation into it. The other explanation is a lot more, it has a lot more to do with the actual actors. So what I think is, and this, this applies more to some of the really classic heroines of Shakespeare. Uh, I shouldn't call them heroines. Like, some of the most notorious females in Shakespeare's play. Juliet and Cleopatra um, and so forth? No, I'm thinking, well, Cleopatra, Lady yes. Lady Macbeth. I'm thinking Lady Macbeth. And I'm thinking... Ophelia? Uh, the two sisters in Lear, the two bad sisters in Lear, Reagan and Goneril. I think that what happened was that Shakespeare... So remember who's playing these females. It's going to be men. But not really men. It's going to be boys. And not really boys but like probably well they're going to be boys probably before their voices break Mm -hmm. and so i think what he had when he wrote at least those female roles and those are incredible female roles i think he had an incredible young male actor whose voice hadn't broken and i think and they end those female roles end almost immediately yeah, I mean, it, which is not to say that he doesn't write other great female roles. He does, but not as powerful and center stage as somebody like like not giving him any lines or as Cleopatra. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're usually the female cast is usually split among four. So, okay, could Viola be that young male actor? It's possible. It's so possible. Practical I, concerns here is what you're suggesting. Yeah, yeah. I completely agree. That's also why, by the way, that some of the plays will just have this random song. He was just showcasing that the actor had a good high voice. So and I don't think he's I don't think he's beyond appealing to having a female ruler on the throne. No, that's that would be absolutely Shakespeare. So you're suggesting that he's not as progressive as we all think he's just practical. Well, Why does I it think have to he be is. one or the other. I'm I'm just I'm causing <laughs> trouble. <laughs> no, I mean I think we talked about the the famous speech by Shylock in Merchant of Venice. I mean, that to me is the clearest evidence that there are many other reasons to think so. I think Shakespeare is very progressive. And I mean that as a compliment, just so everybody knows oh, where I am yes, on that. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think he has a view that, I think he has like a deep sense of the equality of different ethnicities. I think he has a deep sense of the equality between the genders. I think he's also a realist. He's not, he's not, um, he's not pretending that like gender differences don't exist or anything like that. Um, yeah, I think I think Shakespeare is a progressive, and I think that you could say that playing that he because well, which came first? Now, was it because he was appealing to Elizabeth on the throne that those 
um, features get highlighted or was it because he believed in those things and Elizabeth gave him an opportunity to showcase, let's say, gender equality? Who knows? Mm -hmm. Who knows? But my hunch is that kind of in his heart of hearts, I think he, yeah, he believed in equality. I agree with all of that. I agree with everything you said. And uh, to me, that's the, the brilliance of Shakespeare is that he's always operating on so many levels. You know, what has always been so fascinating to me is that Shakespeare can be so ahead of his time and yet so popular in his own time. He's so a man of his time and not a man of his time all at the yeah. same time. And that is so incredibly rare. It's so much more um, usual in literature that someone dies penniless and unknown in their own life. And a hundred years later, people were like, wow, this was amazing. <laughs> Mm -hmm. You know, and then we embrace it. But he was wildly popular. I mean, this was your Saturday afternoon entertainment for a penny. He, he, he's the summer blockbuster film, but he's also the Indie Art House Academy Award winner guy. He's, yeah. he's all of that at the same time. So, so yes, I often think that Shakespeare almost hugs the line of propaganda and how much he panders to his king and queen. But well, he does it at the same useful. Well, yes, and, and they're paying the bills, but he all, but but he does it in this, he does it in this way that he can also play with it. It's almost like, yeah, he puts you a little bit off balance, and then he can say all this other stuff, right? Because on the surface, he's really, and he, it's not just, I don't, gosh, I feel like I have to choose my words so carefully. He's not a propagandist, and he he does believe in order, and order is very important in in the in the world of the Elizabethan, especially at the time that he's writing. I mean, first of all, Elizabeth's whole reign was extremely difficult and fraught with potential disorder and chaos and she's always trying to maintain order and then the fact of uh the problem of her succession and that she has no heir that was an extremely tense moment in the history of england and so obviously order is a big deal and sh and for shakespeare himself order is a big deal and he always upholds order but but within that he's what am I trying to say? That he can challenge notions about gender and race and even religion um, in a way that doesn't threaten the social order. So he's a progressive without being what? Without being a revolutionary. He doesn't come out there yeah. and say, burn it all down. He, he somehow manages to call into question all these complicated things and uphold the basic social hierarchy all at the same time. Hmm. So I guess that makes him more of a reformer than a revolutionary. Yeah. He, he values the fundamental traditions or the fundamental yeah. fundamental tradition yes. that he's working, but he still um, sees its flaws or sees areas that can improve. Or at least I think the, the, the most important thing about Shakespeare, as far as some of this goes, is just that he believes in his characters and he kind oh, of yeah. lets them, he, he's not trying to, I mean, he's a, he's an artist, he's a writer, he's trying to create a world and create actions and things like that. But he also kind of lets his characters uh, live their character life, if that makes sense. Like he, he believes in, in, in their kind of autonomous existence in a way, which is, we're getting into some, you know, weird Josh Gibbs artistic metaphysical stuff that we can talk about on a different show. But, um, <clears throat> the fact that he values the characters in and of themselves empowers, empowers them, I think, which then of course in turns mm -hmm. in turn empowers the actors who pr portray them for centuries, you know, for centuries on. Yes. And I think because he does uphold the traditions and, and the general structure of society, it gives him, uh, what am I trying to say? It gives him a, a more authoritative and powerful place from which he can then critique it because he's not just this burn it all down 
revolutionary. He's someone who loves it, right? I, mm-hmm. I, I love England. I love this world. But here's some things that maybe I don't love so much, and we could maybe talk about this. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't do it in this way that thre- threatened anybody. Because, I mean, you know, they, they closed down the playhouses on occasion. Yeah. <laughs> You had to be careful. You you come out yeah. too much revolutionary, yeah. and then you're done. So he's not. He, nobody's perceiving him as a threat. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. Which he's is why kind some of, of the. Oh, go ahead, Tim. He's on the um. <laughs> these words, progressive. The fact that I had to kind of like clarify is because these are words yeah. that are they're very loaded today. Right. Um, that's why I hesitated there to use it. Absolutely. So I think he is on so if you know the history of letters very well or the history of political thought there's kind of a, a split and the split is kind of it's about two authors Karl Marx is the revolutionary Karl Marx is the one that he wants to burn it all down start over from scratch a total revolution and then Edmund Burke is the other Edmund Burke we would call Paul, oh gosh, we're like getting into these words that I'm not sure I, I can apply to exactly. him. Exactly. He's a, he's a reformer. He's like, he recognizes, does Edmund Burke, that society must always be in a state of change. And sometimes those changes bring bad things. Sometimes those things bring good things. But Burke does not want to burn it all down. He wants to hold on to the best of traditions and reform the worst of traditionalism. Whereas Marx is just like, let's just rip it down. Let's start from the ground and let's, let's build it all up again. And my hunch, this is, this is just, I don't know. Go for it. My hunch is that Shakespeare would be on the Burke side. Now, everybody, of course, wants to, I'm now going to qualify that by saying everybody wants Shakespeare to be on their team. And there's so much material that you can kind of put him on any team that you want to. But as I read him... I think he is more on that. He is. He does seem to favor the realist in him. Makes me think that he would say burning it all down is a is going to cost more lives than it saves. So I would put him in the Burke camp. Now we're talking totally anachronistically. Burke okay. is two hundred years after Shakespeare, but those Marx and Burke are kind of like the two figureheads for radical, radical revolution. Marx or reform and progress through reform by holding on to the traditions and that would be burke oh i completely agree i mean when i read shakespeare he has such a deep concern for the the anarchy and chaos that can be unleashed if there's too much disorder if you if you knock down the king if you if you kill the king the whole world's going to fall apart right so he's he's not a burn it all down guy he would be terrified of that that would unleash chaos that would destroy everyone in Shakespeare's mind and in Elizabethan's mind. Um, But what's so interesting about Shakespeare and about what you just said is that we tend to get caught up in this modern dichotomy as if our only choices are burn it all down or preserve it all. And what I hear you saying, and I believe it to be true, is that Shakespeare is in the middle there, right? Like, can't we sort through the wreckage and say, this is the good, true tradition. This is the true, the beautiful, and the good. This is where we've kind of lost our way. And so let's critique that. Right. Right, but, but we don't have to start from scratch because there is a true and a good and a beautiful that is the foundation, um, which is what I always try to encourage. The, that's why I call myself the classical education anarchist, because I say I try to live in the tension between burn it all down and preserve it all. That you know they're both wrong. You, you gotta you gotta find that middle way. Not everything old is worth preserving, you know, like slavery. Yeah. 
Like, let's get yeah. rid of that. <laughs> but can we get rid of that in a way that doesn't burn down the whole world? That's where it gets yeah. tricky. I think if if Shakespeare was on the radical side, then Julius Caesar would have ended after Act Three. But he carries it on for two more acts, and the two more acts are a lot of chaos. A lot of chaos because Brutus and Cassius killed the king and he or killed the Caesar who had vaulting ambition. And Shakespeare seems to think like, yeah, yeah, he probably did have too much ambition. Yeah, he did probably betray the Republic. But this is what it costs. This is what it costs to do away with him, to assassinate him. Yes. And, so I and think he shows both sides of that, both sides of like, man, this is what Shakespeare, excuse me, this is what Caesar was doing when he um, took over and ended the Republic and basically kind of crowned himself Caesar. This is what happened because of that. And here's what happened when, in the aftermath of uh, him being assassinated. It's, it was bloody and awful. No, that's exactly, that's exactly right. And that, again, points to the brilliance of Shakespeare, that he, he can dim both sides, right? And so, yes, Julius Caesar was becoming a tyrant. But one of the things that, that Shakespeare shows is that when Brutus kills Caesar, he takes on the ghost of Caesar. He becomes the thing that he tried to stop. In other words, violence begets violence. The, the, the revolutionaries also always end up worse tyrants than the one that they killed. That's, and that's not a revolutionary message. Yeah. We there's really a, got off the original question there. <laughs> <laughs> that's good stuff. I have, I have this, uh, this great quote. This is David, we can edit this out if you want to. We, I mean, I'm, I feel like I'm the one who's responsible for taking us so far afield. But why would I? This edit issue that? is, I don't know, because it's so. I, I'm very self conscious about like teetering too close to political issues because this is not a political show, and I'm glad that it's not a political show. Um, but there's say, this great say it quote. Anyway. Yeah, say it anyway, and Logan will pretend to edit it out and then won't. <laughs> no, I, I'm not even going to tell him to find the spot and then it out. Okay, hold on. I'm looking up a. I'm looking up a quote. I should have it memorized. It's about the the way that the church has acted over the years. I hope that we can edit out this long. Angelina, do you want to do some Jeopardy music for us? Do 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 do. Now you have to put in a form of a question now. What is the speech I'm trying to remember? <laughs> Just Google it. I can't. Here it is. Woo! I'm gonna. We gotta leave that in because it's gonna be. There's gonna be so much. Um, it's gonna be so satisfying for all the listeners when Tim finally has the moment where he discovers where he finds it. <laughs> Don't leave it in. No, it's it's awful. <laughs> And I, and I can't even find it. Basically, it's, it's a quote by a church historian named Rowan Baton. The quote's by Rowan Baton. Uh, it's about the early church. And he just kind of observes that through the centuries, when the government tended to be too strong, then the church tended to act like a disruptor. And when the church... 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.